Right. Um, welcome to the table tonight. For those of you guys who are new, my name is Drew, and uh, one of the three uh, not movie stars, first of all, one of, the, one of the four movie stars, one of the three uh, people who, who work at this college ministry here, uh, Scott, the strong young pup, and uh, Rachel, who wants the sailboat, being the other ones. And uh, so it, also, if you're new here, here's, here's how this works every night. Uh, when we come together, we, we walk through during the school year a book of the Bible. And our goal when we do that is, uh, first of all, we want, we want the Word of God in you. We want to be able to teach God's Word in a way that, that helps us get a solid grasp on it and be able to live it out. But we also want to teach it in a way that helps you know how to study for yourself. And so we divide this night into two halves every time. The first half is to walk what we call exegetically, that is, trying to pull meaning out of the text. We're going to walk verse by verse through tonight, first Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 7. Um, verse by verse through that, um, exploring kind of context and background and all those things. And then uh, we'll take a small break, and then another person, Rachel tonight, will get up, and she will take a larger theme from that text and say, okay, now that we know what Paul was saying, now that we've gotten to the bottom of what this text is about, let's talk about how we live it out now. All right, so that's, that's kind of what we do. Last week, we were in first, or second, I keep saying first Corinthians. It's thrown me off that Sunnybrook is teaching first Corinthians on Sunday morning. We're teaching second Corinthians. I keep calling them the wrong thing. Last week, we were in second Corinthians six. And in that passage, um, Paul makes some pretty strong commands towards uh, the church there in Corinth, basically summed up in this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And the idea there is not that you don't hang out with non-Christians, that's not at all what he's talking about. He's saying that we do not take on the values and the attitudes and the lifestyles and the desires of the world. That as the church, we are the temple of God, and what does the holy temple have to do with worldly things, with the things of this world? And so it calls us to kind of um, set those things aside. I'm going to go ahead, just for, uh, just for everybody's sake. There you go. Um, so, this year, or it's this week, we're actually going to be transitioning into seven, and what we're going to see is... I don't, you probably don't even remember this by now. All the way back in like our third week, Paul was in the middle of discussing kind of his travel plans and his plans to come to Corinth, but it didn't all come together and, and some stuff with Titus. And then he just stopped and went on about a four-chapter digression, um, defending his ministry and talking about how his ministry is valid in spite of the fact that it may not look like it to some of the false teachers there. So today we get to pick up what Paul was trying to finish up in chapter 2 before he went on a tangent. Now, I don't think it was on accident. Actually, there's some like speech writers and playwriters and stuff from the first century who talk about the use of digression in speech, that it was kind of a common tactic used sometimes to give listeners a little bit of a break from one thought or to kind of um, insert an underlying theme that needs to be known in order to kind of understand the rest of things. So I think Paul starts in chapter 2 on this idea, which we'll get into, and and then he moves into this digression intentionally to bring us back to where he was towards the end. So um, let's see here. Let's, let's start actually in verse 2 of, first, of 2 Corinthians 7 tonight. And then I'll, I'll catch us up on some of the background in just a moment. I can get there. 2 Corinthians 7 starting in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. 
We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affection, I am overflowing with joy. (coughs) So those three verses right there appear to be a transition section. Transitioning from kind of some of the strong commands that he gave back um, in previous text, but also actually the, the last four chapters. Like I said, he's been defending his ministry and saying, listen, just because it's not flashy, just because I'm suffering in my ministry. In fact, Paul says not, uh, it's, it's because I am suffering that you know that my ministry is authentic. You can know that I suffer like Jesus in bringing the gospel to you, and that's how you know it matters. And so he's been pleading with them to see his ministry and his gospel as true and authentic. And then he kind of wraps that up by saying, listen, make room in your heart for us, because our heart is wide open to you. We love you. We care for you. He says, we are ready. We we live and die with you. That is how close we are together with you. And and so he kind of preps them with that and then he'll move into this section. But look at what he says in verse four. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. Uh, Those two words actually there are are pretty big, especially that idea of comfort. Um, A better word might be, it's paraklesis is in the Greek. Uh, this along, that, that para means alongside of, um, and uh, clasis, I think, has to do with call. I should have looked that up. Um, so kind of like a call alongside of, kind of like an exhortation thing. But it, it could better be translated. In fact, usually when Paul's using it in 2 Corinthians, people would argue encourage might be better than comfort. Um, so in the middle of my affliction, he said, I have received great encouragement to continue to act, a strengthening. And that word comes up, uh, either the verb or the noun form of it, 27 different times in the book of 2 Corinthians. This idea of comfort or encouragement is big in a book that is a lot about suffering as you do ministry. And, and he talks about a lot. It's going to come up, uh, let's see, it's going to come up six times just in the next several verses that we're about to read. So you'll see it and a number of other words get repeated a bunch in the section that we're going to read. Before we do that, let me give us quick, uh, a quick refresher to catch us up. So the reason 2 Corinthians gets written is because Paul had planted this church and things had started off really good between he and this church that he loved. And then somewhere along the lines, things began to get rocky. He had heard that there were some problems there um, in the church, and so he went to visit Corinth just a, a while ago, maybe six to nine months ago, he had visited this town. And it ended up going very, very poorly. It ended up being um, a very difficult time for Paul and for the rest of the church. From what we can piece together, it appears that there's one influential person in this church, at least one, who had started following the way of some of these false teachers who were coming in. And because he had started following it, he, under his, and, and perhaps influencing others, had really come to the belief that Paul was not legitimate, that this was not a true apostle and that he was not one worth following. And while Paul is there, it appears that he confronts Paul publicly in front of the church. And it also appears that no one stands up to this person when he does it. Now, there are some people for a long time who have thought that the person that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians is actually identical to the person who he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 5, which is a guy who is sleeping with his own stepmom. 
Um, and, and this guy also appears to be an influential person in the church. And so some have thought that this is, that that's who he's actually talking about. More recently, people think, no, it's probably not a guy sleeping with his stepmom. It's probably a guy who's confronting Paul's ministry. But there's actually a decent chance that that could be one and the same person. After all, if you are an influential person and you're trying to gain control in the church, and you know, you're wanting to sleep with your stepmom, hopefully that doesn't apply to anyone in here. But if, if that's you then maybe a really good way to get away with it is to call into question the ministry of the guy who's calling you out. And, and, if, you, and if you've got some false teachers who are going to back you up and say, hey, freedom in Christ, you can live however you want, man, then, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to be to your benefit to side with them. Whoever this person is, they come after Paul, and the church apparently does not stand by Paul's side, even though many of them maybe seem to agree Paul's not fully sure. He calls this the painful visit. And he leaves and, and tells them, I'll come back. I'm, I'm going to come back soon. But after being away from there for a little while, he just decides, I don't know if that would be best. I don't know if that would be best for him. I don't know if that would be best for me, for our relationship, if I came back. And so here's the way he describes it in uh, first, or 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 23. He says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice." For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So what Paul decides to do instead of going and visiting, because he's afraid that it's going to inflict too much damage on the relationship if he goes there and has a knockdown, drag out fight with somebody again. And so he's, instead he sends this letter that's come to be known as the tearful letter that Paul says he writes in much anguish knowing that these people, this church that he started, these people that he considers his own children in the Lord, might be turning away from him, that he might lose them in this process. And so he sends this letter with one of his fellow workers, a guy named Titus, who's never mentioned in the book of Acts, but is mentioned in here, and he's also mentioned in his own letter that Paul writes to. Titus is a fellow worker with Paul, and he sends this letter with Titus in the spring, from what we can tell, of A.D. 54, to them to find out. Now, yeah, I think it is in spring of AD 54. He sends this to them. And he waits. And then he waits. And he waits again. And, and the plan is for Titus to come meet him in this town called Troas. And, and so Paul goes there, and Titus never shows up. You know that feeling when you send a text to somebody and or send an email to somebody and like, even as you send it, you're like, oh, I hope this goes over well. I hope they like read my tone right. I hope this isn't too. And you send that out, and then you just don't hear back from them for even five minutes. You start to sweat a little bit, and, and then an hour, and then sometimes a day. You know that feeling, right? Imagine that feeling only about something infinitely more superior, the fate of this church and the kingdom and the gospel in Corinth. And imagine not being able to hear a word 
for months, to not even know what happened, to not know if they received Titus at all, to not know what's happened to Titus, if Titus isn't coming back because something bad has happened there, if Titus got, uh, isn't coming back because something happened bad on the way there. And, and all of this really begins to mess with Paul as he waits on in Tras. And so this is what he says down in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And so from there he decides to go on and, and he hopes because he knows that Titus has to come up. I, I have no map here, sorry. Um, he knows that Titus has to come up from Corinth around this kind of sea, uh, this um, or it's, it's in a peninsula, so he's going to travel around the land, and he's going to have to come through Macedonia. Specifically, we think Philippi. That's where a church that Paul started and really loves is there. Specifically, probably going to have to come through Philippi into Troas. So Paul says, I'm going on to Philippi, and hopefully I'll meet Titus there. And so that's what he does. And now we get to see him pick up, and we find out what happened um, in, in the rest of that story in 2 Corinthians 7. So turn back over there. Starting in verse 5, I'm just going to read straight through this to 16, and then we'll walk back and, and we'll talk it through. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted or encouraged. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice, because I have complete confidence in you. So here is the text. Paul, after waiting for forever, finally gets to see Titus, and Titus comes back to him with great news that what Paul was longing for when he sent that tearful letter 
actually came true. And Paul begins to explain the effect that this had on him. Let's jump back there to verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. As I said, Paul is most likely in Philippi at this time. And he says that he was uh, suffering outwardly and inwardly. We don't know exactly what the outwardly was. We do know that the first time Paul was in Philippi, he gets publicly beaten, kind of rushed by a mob, publicly beaten and then thrown in jail overnight. And, and when they find out that he was a Roman citizen, which means they weren't allowed to beat him without a trial, they ask him, hey, hey, would you mind maybe, you know, leaving before we get in trouble? And so Paul leaves, um, but, but there's a good chance that when he comes back, we know when he writes to the church in Philippi that they're still undergoing persecution. There's a good chance that he enters into the same kind of persecution when he gets to Philippi. So he's experiencing outward persecution, but worse than that is this inner angst over his brothers and sisters in Corinth, hoping that they are responding properly to him. He says that they were struggling with this, and then the first two words of verse 6, but God. Anytime you read a passage, conjunctions are important in trying to get a grasp on the flow of that text, the flow of the argument. So when you see words like but or and or therefore, pay attention to those and watch how they're linking up the statements that are getting made here. But one intentional or one specifically big phrase throughout Scripture is this two-word phrase, but God. Anytime you see that, almost anytime it is worth underlining, highlighting, writing a, a, drawing a box around because there's a big movement that usually comes from those two words. It's the description between something that happens under human weakness and human frailty, but God, and then the text will switch and show what happens under God's power and God's purpose. That goes all the way back to even in Genesis 50, after Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers, and when they finally realize it, he he ends up uh, going all the way to Egypt, and through his time in Egypt, he ascends to the throne in Egypt, second in command to Pharaoh, and through that position, he is able to use his authority um, to help spare the people of Egypt and ultimately to spare his own family. And so later when his brothers discover who he is and where he is, they're nervous that he's going to take retribution on them for that. But he says, don't worry about it. Listen, you did all of this. You sold me into slavery intending harm. But God meant for it to happen so that I might be able to save many people. This is what man desired, but God did this. Uh, My favorite psalm in, in, in all other psalms is Psalm 73. And there's this text in there that talks about, uh, the, the psalmist talks about seeing wicked people prosper and how he wonders why wicked people prosper but righteous people like him don't prosper and it doesn't seem to be fair, it doesn't seem to be right. But then he comes to this realization that actually these people only pos- prosper for a short time because they don't have what is ultimately enough to satisfy and that is God himself. He says this in there, my heart and my flesh may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
that he, regardless of what is happening in my life, regardless of what is happening to my body, and regardless of how I might be wasting away, God is enough for me. And then one of the biggest ones in all of Scripture comes in Ephesians 2, where Paul marks out that at one point, every one of us were um, living in our sin, and not just living in it, we were actually dead in our sins because of our trespasses against God, and we were objects of wrath. But then it says this, but God, because of his great love for us, came to us through Jesus to save us. Anytime you see that, and Paul says, I was suffering in my body, both on the outside and the inside, but God came and brought comfort to me. And Paul gives these three words that caused him to rejoice. He says, he found out that the Corinthians were longing, for him, they were longing to see him. He found out that they were mourning, which would have been mourning over the sin that had been in the church. And lastly, he says he found out that they had such great zeal. What he means by that is a passion to do what is right, in spite of the fact that they didn't do it the first time. Now they have a zeal to do what is right. He's going to list a whole lot more soon, which you heard when we read through the text. Uh, look at verse 8. Um, He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is the key section of this text. Those three verses right there are critical. And Rachel is going to get up here and expound on those a little bit more in just a bit. But Paul says in here, this is kind of interesting, as your friend, I don't regret hurting you. As your friend, I don't regret causing you to grieve, causing you to be sorrowful. Why? He says because the grief you experienced was a godly grief. Or godly sorrow, you may hear it referred to. I think that's how the NIV calls it, a godly sorrow. Now, literally, actually, it is a grief according to God in the Greek. That's how it's described. A grief according to God, which would probably well be translated. A lot of times when we see that phrase, according to God, it's translated like according to God's will, which means what you experienced was a sorrow that God intended. Kind of an interesting way to talk about this, that there is a kind of sorrow, there is a kind of grief that God wants for us, that He wants us to experience. You experience, he said, the sorrow that God intended. Here's how John Chrysostom, kind of an early church father, uh, talked about this idea. He says that the kind of, what Paul is describing here when he says, I saw that I hurt you, but, but in the end I'm kind of glad that it happened. He said it's like a father watching his son have to receive some kind of surgery. And he's not happy about the pain that his son is going through, but he is happy about the cure that that pain will bring. And that's what God experiences when he's, when he's willing, when he intends for us to experience grief in given points. There are points when it's not that he wants us to be sad, but he wants the holiness, the purity, the repentance that will come from that grief, that will come from that sadness. As I said, Rachel will get into that in just a little bit. Um, here's the big question, though. He says, what I was glad you experienced was godly sorrow, godly grief, instead of worldly grief. And, and the big question is, what's the difference? And how can you tell which one is you? 
surely almost every one of us in here, probably every one of us, knows what it's like to feel bad over something you did. Here's the question. Was that the good kind of bad you were feeling or the bad kind of bad? And how do you know whether it was? That's what, that's what we'll talk about in just a little bit. For now, I want to move on to verse 11. Um, four, he says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So here Paul tacks on these other descriptions, these seven different words he uses um, to describe them. And, and uh, he, some of them we've already seen, um, zeal and grief and all of those things. But there are other ones he says, you could see this indignation in you, Paul says. And, and it's not an indignation like they're angry at Paul for confronting them. It's an indignation that looks back at what happened and said, how could we have let this sin in our church? How could we have let that go on? Another word Paul uses to describe them in this is fear. Did you see the kind of fear that you had? Which is kind of strange, but in the same way that there is such thing as a good sorrow, there is also just such thing as a good fear. A right fear that looks and goes, I can't believe we've been living like this. I, I, I can't believe we would allow this, and I don't want to experience the judgment that might come upon me if I continue to live this way. Paul's primary purpose, though, he says in here, um, is not, he says, I didn't write to you on behalf of the one who did wrong. That's this, this person who stood up and, and lived in sin. And he said, and I didn't actually even write to you on behalf of the one who is wronged, which is probably him that he's talking about. He could be talking about the, the father whose, whose wife was being slept with by his son, but, but he, it's probably talking about himself. I, I wasn't even writing on my own behalf. Primarily, my main goal in sending you that tear-filled letter was to open your eyes to hopefully get you to see the actual, the actual state of your heart, to get you to see actually the, the earnestness that you have for us, I, the earnestness that I knew was there, to do right. I wanted you to be able to see that in yourself. He says in 13, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame, but just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. You ever um, recommended something to a friend, to somebody, recommended a movie or a place to go eat? Oh, you got to check out this place. They have the best pizza. They have the best steak. They have the best. You've got to go try it. And, and then go there and... You ever had that feeling after you recommend something that goes, ooh, I hope they like it. Like, I, I, I hope that, I, I, I talked so highly of that place, I hope they're not going to hate it, I'll feel bad about that, okay? Um, Paul has just done that with Titus in the Corinthian church. When Paul sends this letter that he wept over, he, he, he tells Titus, and I think kind of tells himself, 
I, I believe this, that they're going to respond to this. I know these people. I know what they're like. When they see this, their heart is going to change. Trust me, Titus. These are, these are good brothers and sisters. They want to do the right thing. And then he sends Titus off and he goes, oh, I hope they do the right thing. And, and, he's, and he's hoping so badly that it's going to turn out right. And so when Titus comes back, he's, he's not only excited and encouraged to see Titus, he's excited because he gets to see the way Titus' face lights up when he talks about the Corinthian church and the way that God worked in this church and the way that God is making them more holy and pure through these things. Notice in this text, okay, I, we're going to spend most of the time here talking about this idea of godly grief here, but if I could add kind of one side thing. One thing this text really highlights to us <coughs> is the risk and the hardship and the incredible joy of actual biblical community. To really dig in, to really involve yourself in other people's lives is going to mean some very risky things sometimes. And it's going to mean some very difficult things when Paul confronts these people that he loves and almost lose, loses his relationship with them. But do you notice not just the joy he gets to experience because he was willing to, to risk it and invest in them, but the compounded joy. He, he's not just excited for the Corinthians. He's excited because he gets to see that joy reflected into Titus' own heart and his own eyes. And he gets to see the way that the Lord is building up Titus because Titus got to see how Jesus was working in these people and in Paul's lives at the same time. This is what community does. It is div- When we do it for real... When we do it right, it will be hard sometimes. It will be risky, and, and, and sometimes we will be hurt by those things. But the Bible, Bible makes clear that that is good and right and even intended. Proverbs 27.6 is kind of a fairly famous verse um, that basically says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But he says, but you can't even trust the kisses of an enemy. But, but it is okay and good and right and faithful when your friend confronts you in your sin. When your friend loves you enough to wound you. To, to gently, hopefully, to with humility, speak some hard, difficult truths into your life. That is a good thing. That is a hard thing for both sides. But ultimately, it is for the good of them and good of the kingdom. And that's something that we get to see in this little snapshot of Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church here in chapter 7. Let's take just a couple minute break. You need to stretch or use the restroom. It's back through this room right here. And then Rachel will get up and take us through this idea of grief. So you got up in this big station. Get this recording here. Okay, so... I, this is godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. This is a topic that I absolutely love. And I kind of, as I was getting ready for this, I was just thinking, man, how much I would love to be able to just sit down with each and every one of you just kind of over coffee and kind of talk about this because um, there's just a lot here. But I'm excited to kind of jump in and talk about that. So one of the big questions I kind of want to answer, at least start the conversation on and get our minds thinking towards is what Drew said. What is the difference in godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Because when you think about that word sorrow, typically we think emotion, and we just kind of think feeling bad. And they both have that. So what then is the difference? Um, And as I was just thinking through times in my life, okay, so how do we define that? I was thinking through times in my own life where I can look back and say, man, like that was godly sorrow, and I can praise God for that. And I also see times where 
it's like, yeah, that was major worldly sorrow. And so I'm going to do what I do a lot of times, which is tell a super dumb story on myself. So I'll, I'll give that to you guys. You kind of get the dirt on me. But I was thinking about, in particular, this one time kind of stood out in my mind where I look at it and it's like, that is, that sums up worldly sorrow. So if you know a little bit about me, I, I grew up in a Christian home and I was baptized at the age of six. Um, but during kind of my junior high years, all the way up until um, college, I, I did not love Jesus. I loved the world. And I was, you just, you need to know that for the story, that I, I was running hard and fast from Jesus. Um, and then at 18, he, he radically transformed every part of my life. But anyway, so this puts me, this story, I'm, I'm in high school, okay? My family grew up on a little bit of land. We had like a couple of acres, and we lived in this neighborhood kind of use that term loosely because like there was a lot of cattle and just different stuff around us. Um, like we had a creek out at the back of my house. Um, so I am close to town, kind of in a neighborhood. There's other houses, but there's also, there's a lot of land. Um, and so I guess it would have been between my freshman and sophomore year in high school. Um, I was dating this guy who he, um, he lived in another town that was not too far away, but I didn't get to see him all that often. Um, he lived with his mom. His parents were divorced. His dad lived in my neighborhood, so kind of just back at the back of it, where there was a lot of land in between, and then his dad had this house there. And his dad was the kind of parent who was super chill, okay? His, actually, his job, he was a bouncer at a nightclub, and that kind of summed up the parenting or the lack thereof. He was just like, whatever, did not care. My parents, on the other hand, had a lot of like ideas and rules about when it was cool for me to hang out with a boyfriend um, and like what time of day or night that should or should not happen. And so I had a curfew and there were all these things. And so, but again, my boyfriend lived out of town, didn't get to see him that often. And so there was this weekend where he was staying at his dad's house. And um, so I followed the rules like I was supposed to do, you know, hung out with him, came home. And then I did what every teenager who does not love Jesus and wants to hang out with their boyfriend does. I waited until my parents fell asleep and the house was asleep and I snuck out and I went and I was hanging out with my boyfriend. Um, and I remember very much, I mean, I think it was probably like 3 a.m., okay? So it's, it's very, very late. We're hanging out. I just remember like watching TV, just chilling or whatever, um, you know, not feeling bad at all about what I'm doing. And I'm really, I'm, you're gonna, I, my age is going to show, okay, because this is before cell phones. So if you can picture it, there it is, 3 a.m., not a care in the world, and all of a sudden, at the front door, there is a knock. And in that, like, second, my heart just drops because I'm thinking, who in the world is coming to your house at 3 a.m. unless it would be my mother? And yes, it was, in fact, my mother. So, but I'm still, I'm not giving away my position, guys. So I'm, I'm like, hiding in the back room. The boyfriend, like, goes, answers the door. He's covering for me. No, Mrs. Clarkson, like, I haven't seen her. If I hear from her, I'd be sure to let you know. You know, he's just lying. So he, so he comes back, and he's like, you got to get out of here. I'm like, no kidding, you know. But my mom is a very smart woman, and I know that my mom probably knows that I am there. And my mom, being the smart woman that she is, is waiting for me. This is the trap, guys. So she is going to be sitting there in her car waiting for me to come out so that we will have this conversation. Okay, so not only did you sneak out, but then now you lied. A lot of things happening. So I get this brilliant idea that, well, I'm just going to sneak out the back and, like, go through the land. Like, I'm just going to sneak out back, go through all the land, come up the back of my house, 
and then I'll think of something on the way. I'll think of something. And so I don't, the boyfriend approves this plan. So I'm like, all right, I'm out, you know. So I go, you guys, I am running into cattle. I am jumping over barbed wire fences. I still have a scar. It's like this big where a barbed wire fence got me as I am like frantically trying to beat her home and like trying to come up with the story in my mind of like how in the world am I going to get out of this. And the one thing I can tell you is I did not feel bad at all about what I had done, but I felt very, very, very bad thinking about getting caught. And so now this is like the most embarrassing part of the story that I am about to tell you. So I do, I make it up the back of the land and I get in and of course my mom, sure enough, is waiting for me. She was in a car, I was on foot, that's the way it goes. So I, I come in and she is like, what's going on? You know, I'm getting the, all the questions and this is the really embarrassing part, okay? And I said to her mother, I cannot believe that you think that I would have snuck out of this house. In fact, I have been on our land down at the creek praying and my mom is just standing there staring at me like you have got to be kidding me and she didn't buy it at all so in that moment worldly sorrow i didn't care about what i had done but i sure cared about getting caught um, as we look in scripture i see another example that really stands out in my mind um, with the Israelites where they experienced something similar, worldly sorrow. Um, so if you know kind of the story of Moses bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, right? They've been enslaved, okay? And um, God destroys Egypt, essentially. He sends all of these plagues, okay? And then and he brings Israel out, um, and they come to the Red Sea, and the Egyptians are chasing them. God parts the Red Sea. He brings them through safely. He crushes the Egyptian army. God is feeding them in the desert. He is giving them water. He is taking care of them. He is, he is through Moses, giving them all of these words of, this is how you are to live, and I will be your God, and this is what you are to do. And so much of this has been a journey leading them towards what God promised Abraham, which was, like, this is going to be the land that I am going to give your descendants, okay? That is what is happening. And so, Numbers 13 and 14 kind of tells this story where the time has come. God says, I want you to go and I want you to take possession of the land. And there were a lot of wicked nations that were dwelling there. And God says, basically, their time is up. Um, you've been wicked. I'm taking this land from you and I'm giving it to the Israelites. Um, and so war has to happen for this to take place, for them to go in, obey the word of the Lord, and lay hold of the land that he says he's going to give them, um, a rich land flowing with milk and honey, that this is the promised land. Um, and so Deuteronomy actually kind of gives us a little more insight to what happens. Um, but Moses says that as the time comes, they're supposed to go, they're supposed to take hold of the land. The people come to him with what seems like a really wise idea. And they say, hey, like, maybe we should go scout out the land. Maybe we should send some men to kind of get, get a feel for the lay of the land, the people there, what's happening, um, so that we can know basically how best to attack and how we should go about this. And so that sounds reasonable to Moses, right? Like, that sounds wise. So he sends 12 men, 12 spies, if you will, to go and to do just that, to scout out this land. And so for 40 days, that's what they do. Um, they are taking hold of the lay of the land, and then they come back and they give a report, which some of you may know, um, and they're divided. 
So 10 of the men come back and say, the land is amazing. Um, you know, they talk about the fruit and the produce and just how incredible this land is. It is as God has said. However, there is no way we can go and fight these people. There are giants living in this land. And the Bible actually tells us that these spies say we are like grasshoppers to them. They are enormous. We cannot do this. There's no way. Only two of the 12, um, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb say, yes, that's okay. The land is amazing. That part's true. But we believe Yahweh. We believe what God is promising us. We believe what he is saying. So let's come. Let's go. Let's take hold of that land. Let's be obedient and obey. And Israel, unfortunately, does not listen to the two, but they listen to the ten. And so the Bible tells us, basically, guys, they threw a tantrum. They were weeping and mourning and complaining and grumbling and accusing God of all sorts of things and saying, we cannot believe that he brought us out of Egypt into this desert to kill us and to kill our little ones. And if we were to go attack these people, we're just going to be slaughtered. And so they're going on and on. Um, and obviously God hears about it because he hears all things. And God has a conversation with Moses. And he says, basically, um, I, I am going to punish this nation for their refusal to believe and their refusal to obey. In fact, um, a year for every day that those spies were out scouting, so 40 days, 40 years is this nation going to wander around the wilderness and every single one of your able-bodied fighting men is going to die here except for Joshua and Caleb and those little ones that you said were going to be destroyed they are the ones who will take hold of the promise and will enter into the land and so at the end of Numbers 14, it kind of picks up. Moses has just told this to all the people, okay? Like, you have sinned. This is what God has said. This is, um, this is the punishment that's going to take place, okay? And we would hope then that they, yeah, they're going to they're gonna be sorry, right? There's going to be some sorrow. Um, but unfortunately, it's not godly sorrow. We're going to see that it's a real worldly sorrow because this is how they respond. This is what they do. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel... The people mourned greatly. So that part is good. They rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that Yahweh has promised for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up for Yahweh is not among you lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. You're going to die. Don't do it, he says. Because you have turned back from following Yahweh, Yahweh will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh nor Moses departed out of the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. They chased them. That's how bad they beat them. And so I think as I, as I kind of wrestle with, okay, so what, what do these things have in common? And what is a good definition for worldly sorrow? Um, this is kind of what I want us to remember, that worldly sorrow just feels bad. Usually that it got caught or is missing out on something that it desires. It feels bad because it got caught. 
or because it's missing something that it desires. Usually that thing that it desires is some idol of choice. Worldly sorrow just feels bad that it's not getting what it wants. It feels bad that things aren't going my way. So if that is what worldly sorrow is, what is godly sorrow? How in the world is that different? Um, I think the answer lies in our, in our text. And so I'm going to read verses 10 through 12 again. And I, this is the fruit that godly sorrow produces. Okay? Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. I love that phrase, salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. My favorite phrase is that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. I love that in the middle of those verses. Um, like that, that, says, that says everything. Do you guys ever think, do you ever spend time thinking about like what you want to be known for or what you want desperately like to be true about your life? My life over the last three years has been really close and really like upfront with a lot of death that has affected me. And so this is going to sound really morbid, but I think, I think it can be good for us. I have spent a whole lot of the last three years thinking about death and thinking even as crazy as it sounds like about my death and thinking about at the end of my life, however long that is, what do I want people to be able to say about me like what do I want to be known for what do I want to be like the mark of my life um, and so again this sounds really weird but I actually know what I want my tombstone to say I know that's really creepy but and I have told my husband if this is not true do not put it on there so that is that is the thing um, but I'm going to share it with you guys um, I want it to say like here lies Rachel Vincent 1986 to who knows maybe tomorrow Follower of Jesus Christ, beloved wife, mother, and daughter. And then this is it. This is what I so, so bad want to be true. May God do this in me. That the work of her life was loving and delighting in God. And now she will enjoy him forever. That is what I want to be known for. Salvation without regret. But, but here's the hard part, okay? So I, like, I know I thought a lot about that. Like I want that to be true. I want to live my life backwards. Like, I want to know, okay, this is my end goal. So how do I get there? How can I live every day in light of that, in light of the truth of the gospel, in light of what God has done for me? And I think this is kind of where godly sorrow comes in. Um, because there are days that I wake up, and if I'm just being honest, I don't care. I don't care some days. Some days I am tired, and my kids kept me up all night. And I wake up, and I am cranky. And I don't care about that being my end goal. Or sometimes tragedy comes into my life and I am questioning everything. And I have a hard time caring about this. Or sometimes it's just a hard day or you name it. Different circumstances um, can come into play and can cause me to lose sight of the truth. Um, and so that, that is where I think that God 
uses godly sorrow um, through the Holy Spirit to enable us to kill sin in our life. And so this is kind of what I want you to remember from this, okay? So where worldly sorrow feels bad, that it got caught or it's missing out on something it desires, this is it, that godly sorrow feels bad that it is missing out on God. And so it repents. It feels bad that it is missing out on God. And so it repents. And that word, repents, um, that word in the Greek is metanoia. And it actually means to change your mind. Godly sorrow enables us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to put sin to death. Godly sorrow is abiding in Jesus. It is salvation without regret that we are alive to him and dead to sin. See, I I didn't feel bad at all in my story that I shared with you, right? That I was missing out on anything but what I wanted because I was my idol. So I just felt bad. There was just this emotion. Godly sorrow feels bad because it knows it's missing out on God and it wants to change. So if that is true, How do we, as believers, how do we um, set ourselves up to practice godly sorrow? Okay, it's kind of the next, like the practical piece that I want to talk through. And the first thing, guys, is this. There is absolutely no getting around the Holy Spirit. Like, we cannot conjure this up, right? Um, But I think godly sorrow happens when um, the Holy Spirit convicts us and reveals to us that there's sin in our life. And this can happen, I mean, you guys know, it could be um, you're sitting in a church service and you feel that conviction where God is revealing something, um, sin in your life, something needs to change. There's something that you need to repent of. Or maybe it's in a small group. Or maybe it's when you're reading your Bible or you could just be driving down the road. But there is this moment where we feel the Holy Spirit and we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we have an opportunity at that point to practice godly sorrow or to tell the Holy Spirit, no thanks, I'm good. No thanks, I'm good. Um, There is a guy who taught for a lot of years at Ozark and then he's written some commentaries and um, there is a quote of his that like I think should sober us a little bit Um, and it says, it's it's, um, Don DeWelt, that's his name. So, but the quote says this, that Jesus does not abide where he is not wanted, okay? And I think that that's really true, that we can, like, we can harden our hearts when that conviction comes and we say, no thanks, I'm good, over and over. Like, eventually, Jesus says, okay, have it your way, right? And so that's kind of the one thing I I want us, I guess just my caution and that I would, that I would, um, give to us tonight to kind of think through and to make sure that we're not hardening our heart to the Holy Spirit, but that we're being open. And I think a really great example of this in Scripture is found in Acts 2. Um, and I, and man, I love this passage, passage, but basically what happens is Peter, who just had denied Jesus and Jesus is crucified, um, he was raised to life, okay? He appears to the disciples. All these things are happening. Um, that same Peter who denied Jesus before the Holy Spirit 
came and like took over in his life. He is preaching to all of the people who killed Jesus in Acts 2. And he tells them, this same Jesus that you crucified, God has, you know, he is Messiah. He is God. All of these things. And he is giving them just the truth of the gospel. Um, and he is, he is like unpacking everything for him. And they're sitting there and they realize that they are the ones who have killed Jesus. Um, and I love their response. It is this moment where you know the Holy Spirit is convicting and prompting them. And I, their response is, is what we should just take and, and that should be, we should model that. Um, because it's, the Bible says that they are cut to the heart. Okay, that's that moment. Have you been cut to the heart? The Spirit is convicting you about something and you are cut to the heart. If you've experienced that, then you know exactly what that means when it says that. And I love that phrase. Um, but So they're cut to the heart. And where that could be worldly sorrow, just feeling bad, it's not. The next thing that they say is to Peter and to the apostles, brothers, what should we do? That's that repentance piece. That they don't just leave it as feeling bad, as an emotion. But they know they're missing out on God. And so they want to repent and they want to change. And it says that that day 3,000 of them repent and are saved. Which is an incredible thing to think about. Um, and so this, can, this is true in our own life. When those moments happen, when that time comes, that the Holy Spirit is convicting us and is giving us this opportunity um, to practice godly sorrow that we say, brothers, what should we do? So if you come to Sunnybrook, you've probably heard us use this language where we say, repent and believe or recognize and respond. Um, and another like simpler way of saying it or remembering it is just see and do. So Practically speaking, in that moment, when you feel that conviction, uh, first of all, like to spend time with God and saying, like, God, how, how did I get here? And what is it that needs to change? And you kind of observe and you think about your life and you sit with the Lord and you let him speak to you and you reflect. Um, and then the other thing that you do is you bring community into that, like Drew was talking about. You know, James 5.29 says, Confess your sins one to another and be healed. There, sin thrives in secret, okay? There is, such a, there is such a freeing thing from being able to, in genuine community, be real and transparent and confess your sins to each other. And I am not talking about, like, you have to text your small group when you're on campus, like, just had a wicked thought about that girl I just passed. I'm not talking about stuff like that, but I am talking about where there is ongoing struggles, okay, in your life, um, that we have biblical community that we can share and talk through. And this is like a two-sided piece, okay? So it's not just that, you know, I go to Morgan Weiss and I say, Morgan, I'm struggling with this, and she listens to me and she nods. And then we both go on our way. But we should love each other enough, as Paul did for the Corinthians, to ask hard questions. And, and to kind of say, okay, so why do you think that is? Or how did you get there? What's led you to this point? Those types of things. That we love each other and, and we work together. Okay, We work together um, and the Holy Spirit's going to make us holy as we do those things. Um, and then the second piece, after you recognize, is the responding. And that also, part of that is done in community. You say, so, okay, if this is what it is, we spent time praying about it, we spent time talking about it in biblical community and confessing it. So, so what do I do? What do I do? 
What is the plan? How does this change? That is this other part of this repent piece that it doesn't um, to change your mind. And it doesn't just mean that I feel bad, but godly sorrow feels bad that it's missing out on God. And it says, I'm not going to let sin get in the way of that. I'm going to use this through the power of the Holy Spirit to put it to death and to change. And so we make a plan and I bring accountability into that too. Like, hey, ask me, please ask me about this. These are the things that I'm doing. Can you check on me? Okay. Um, that's, that's what it looks like. I, one thing I just want to say, <clears throat> I think almost more than anything, you guys, what can get in the way of us doing it, this in our life is our busyness and of us not taking the time to sit with God and to be still and to listen, okay? I, I just, I so want to encourage you to pursue spiritual disciplines. Um, and that starts with like daily Bible reading and prayer and just, I mean, getting in the word and being still before God. Um, and there is um, a Psalm that I love, Psalm 139 says, search me God and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So that is not just waiting. Like as I go about my life, like maybe God will say something to me. It's taking time to say like, God, I, you are what I want. And if there is anything in me that is offensive to you, like convict me of that. Let me repent. Enable me to repent. Um, and so I actually, like, I want to spend, I want to give you guys a few minutes even to do that now and to pray that prayer that if there is anything offensive in me, um, God, you, like, give me the opportunity to repent. And if there is anything where I have been hardening my heart um, and where I have been saying, I'm good, Holy Spirit, and there's been worldly sorrow in me, um, ask God to convict you of that and then to help you, like, change that around, to have true repentance um, and to come before him. And so our worship team is going to come up. They're going to play just for a few minutes as you guys just kind of sit quietly and, and get with the Lord and pray. Um, and then after that, we will spend some time together singing and worshiping God. <laughs>